Hi, and welcome to Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast, highlighting artists, teachers, authors, and philanthropists of the regenerative movement, people who are committed to and showcase qualities of planetary leadership. My name is Julian Guderlei. I'm a transformational coach, a breathwork teacher, and I'm committed to a world that allows people from all walks of life to thrive. I'm your host and creator of Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast, and in today's episode, um, I have my co-host Rodrigo Cunha with me. This is part of the Rehuman series, and our guest is Alpha Demelash, the CEO of Rising Tide Capital. Rising Tide Capital provides business development services designed to transform lives by helping individuals start and grow successful businesses, build communities through collaboration with other nonprofits, higher education institutions, corporations, and public agencies. Alpha is a young global leader with the World Economic Forum, a pioneer of the regenerative movement, and currently serves on the board of the New Jersey Future of Work Task Force, the New Jersey Pandemic Release Fund, and the Hawthorne Valley Association. She's passionate about social entrepreneurship, education, conflict resolution, and the environment, our planet Earth. Alpha, with these words, welcome. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And hi, Rodrigo. It's always great to be, to be here with you. Oh, it's great to be back. Uh, lovely yeah. to, to have the opportunity to interview so many amazing people in this podcast. Thank you, Julian. Yeah, yeah, this is going to be a good episode. Alpha, let's, let's start right, uh, right at, the, at the top of the priorities. We, you know, it's unprecedented times on the planet. Like, from your own perspective, what do you reckon is most required for us as humanity right now in, in this world of today? Mm. Uh, great place uh, to start and, uh, and thank you again. And I think, uh, you know, it's always important that we uh, have a level of awareness about where, where we're standing in any journey that we're <laughs> undertaking. And I think uh, looking at where we are today, at least for those of us who uh, have been um, doing a lot to try and understand uh, the context of the conditions we're trying to impact. Um, it feels like we're in a huge uh, accelerated moment for many of the trends, uh, the crisis trends that we've been um, looking to impact. Uh, and when you add uh, the pandemic, into the mix, it has in many ways um, accelerated a lot of our challenges. And at the same time, it has also provided, I think, the level of urgency and the kind of creative constraints, if you can call them that, uh, within which we have to uh, respond. Uh, and so uh, paralysis is not an option. And I think um, there, the pandemic has also kind of leveled the, the playing field to some degree. Uh, in terms of the constraints on all actors uh, in ways that uh, I hope could be utilized by uh, social entrepreneurs and, and people like us who want to um, transform the world uh, to be able to do so um, you know, in a new way. I think um, there's a lot of new eyes that are being opened up and that level of internal as well as external awareness and connectivity is gonna be cr crucial. So. Um, yeah. Powerful. I, I, like I very much hear you on that. I think these times are unprecedented and I always want to acknowledge the, the pain and the suffering some people are going through, but really it raises the bar of awareness to understand the times now, right? It's a lot of the systems that are collapsing and imploding. They, they need us to rise to the occasion and build, build new answers and new pathways. So maybe to, to go back a little bit, how did your journey into this way of awareness thinking and just being and living start, start out? I, I know you immigrated to the US at some point. Um, you were born and raised in Ethiopia, right? Correct, uh, yes. I uh, was born and raised in Ethiopia up until I was almost 13. Uh, my mom was a refugee, she had left uh, the dictatorship of Mangistu Haile Mariam, uh, who had you know, declared a state of red terror and uh, was really taking on uh, university students in particular. And so it was a really tough time. Uh, my grandparents uh, then took charge of, of me and uh, my young aunt, who was 16 at the time, uh, gave my mom courage to say, leave and leave her with us and we'll take care of her. Uh, so, 
you know, being, um, I think in many ways, uh, raised in that kind of an environment where you, you did have dictatorship and really, um, you know, the failure of the state and tanks on the streets and not really being sure um, what the next moment might look like or, mm -hmm. you know, spending uh, time with my grandmother in, in uh, jails as she's trying to protect, you know, her kids uh, from uh, persecution uh, has uh, probably given me a level of exposure um, that I think many, uh, unfortunately, many, many people who are in, in countries that are in a state of uh, war or violence or perpetual uh, persecution um, are very intimately familiar with. So the state of distress and the unknown unknowns we're navigating right now, um, in many ways, I feel like I've been preparing for since I was a little kid. And um, and when I, uh, my mom, it took her about 10 years to actually save enough uh, money here in the US uh, to be able to pay for my ticket and bring me here and educate me. And uh, during that time that I was uh, in Ethiopia, I had an assumption, A, that, you know, America must be this land of uh, milk and honey, and my mom must be like living in some kind of very, um, very hmm. castle of some kind. So I used to like sit there with uh, a lot of my cousins and the neighborhood kids, and I will write a very long Santa list to her of all of the things that we needed delivered, you know, from, from the US that, that used to be a part of my ritual as a little kid. Um, and certainly having arrived in the U.S., my eyes were opened to the, to the struggle that is very much real in uh, even the most developed uh, nations and the level of uh, both uh, abject and working poverty uh, that is invisible, uh, but um, very distressing was something that I had uh, encountered kind of from a very different lens. Um, but my time in Ethiopia has certainly, you know, shaped me in very profound ways. Um, and I also had the tremendous privilege of uh, spending, you know, most of the, the school year in the city and the summers on a farm with my grandfather. He was a farmer um, for the last 50 years of his life. Uh, so deep connections to land and to agriculture and, you know, the way things are farmed in Ethiopia is the way things used to be farmed 3,000 years ago. So very labor intensive, uh, but uh, also very connective in, in a strange way. And that's never left me. Beautiful. Alpha, uh, when you were speaking about uh, when you got to the US, I was just wondering, what do you have in mind? Like, what's going to be like the land of milk and honey? What did you see? And Maybe we can go a little deep into that because sometimes we kind of uh, romanticize about the ideal place in the world, and we know there are so many uh, problems in the like the most wealth nation in the world, which is the U.S. So there are so many disparities, and maybe it's time to look deeper into this and understand that we have to fix the world as a whole. And maybe your personal experience would somehow highlight that. Well, what did you have in Ethiopia that people doesn't uh, value, but at the same time, same time, it's so important for everyone's uh, history and life, right? The connection with family and nature. And sometimes we, we separate from that because we're looking for something to achieve. It's a great question. And it's something that I, I talk to uh, my family and friends uh, back home in Ethiopia a lot about uh, because I think there is a perception uh, that the West, and particularly in places like the U.S., uh, that uh, surely, you know, I mean, when you look at some indicators, uh, are much uh, much wealthier uh, as as countries and have more infrastructure, and um, and yet uh, the experience for individuals and for families, uh, especially, uh, you know, when I came to see my mom and my mom. Uh, had in order for her to save enough money to bring me, she had come here as a refugee. She'd gotten a job uh, waitressing and realized that she would make so little money uh, from waitressing full time that she would, and she would have to count on tips, 
and that she would not be able to have a level of certainty or security about her her income uh, to to fulfill on the promise of reunification with me. And so she ended up going to night school, studying how to design, you know, gowns. And she became a seamstress. She opened a business at night and uh, started, you know, making these gowns for people who had events, people who wanted to uh, have, you know, representational, cultural representation in the new country they were in, but also um, wanted to, um, you know, wanted to uh, have access to the kinds of gowns that you would get if you are in your own country, perhaps. And so she she found a way to supplement uh, her income, um, but also generate, you know, and have a sense of agency to be able to actually, um, um, you know, generate enough uh, income uh, to connect with me. And that's uh, really kind of what I observed was. Uh, a, a wonderful, amazingly committed, you know, I love my mom so much. Um, uh, she had a little picture of me that she carried in her wallet the entire time she was here and would show to all her friends to say, this is my one goal. I don't care how long it takes me. I have to reunite with, with her. Um, but doing that work meant even when I arrived in the U.S., she was still running her business and she was unwilling to let go of the, the waitressing because she wasn't sure, you know, there is still a lot of uncertainty. Uh, so I saw a woman who would wake up at 4 a.m. in the morning, you know, go to her waitressing uh, work at 6 a.m. in a big hotel, and then come back at two, make, made sure that we were fed, uh, myself and my sister, and would start making gowns and sewing and managing a fairly complex, you know, small business operation. Uh, which was what gave me kind of the the lens and appreciation for what it takes that the opportunities may be there, but um, the amount of work that uh, people would have to do, families have to do, household heads like my mom had to do in order to make ends meet was astounding. And the degree of difficulty was, and the strategic decisions they have to make. And she never felt like she belonged. You know, I mean, of course, a lot of immigrants, especially first generation, still feel a, a huge draw to home and to connection. Um, but uh, in terms of uh, having the confidence and the knowledge, the access to timely information or resources um, and the social capital to access mainstream business services, she would say, no, 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 that is, that's not for me. I'm not a business person in that sense. And so those were all, um, you know, observations that impacted what I ended up uh, doing. And I think there is a lot of um, glamorization of what uh, living in the West and how many freedoms you get if you could just be here and, and chase, you know, your dreams. Uh, there's a lot of truth to that, but there's also a lot of broken promises and a lot of families who are invisible. And in Ethiopia, you know, when you are, um, there's a lot of certainly very visible poverty and struggle, but I think the connectivity between people, um, even being able to be exposed to a level of poverty that can bring out empathy and compassion and creativity um, feels a lot more grounding as a, as a human um, than the kind of isolation and invisibility. And in the US, you could look like you're a millionaire and, and be like barely eating or living in your car and people wouldn't even know it. And so there is just a very isolating and cold poverty here that uh, doesn't support um, the kind of human flourishing that we hope for, for every person on the planet. It's very powerfully put. I am I'm absolutely with you that the social connection, the, you know, the, the networks of interbeing that we form as humans are a, a vital part of actual prosperity. And so they, you know, classically, I grew up in Germany, Rodrigo in Brazil, you in Ethiopia, and we, we know the US and Canada and all these different places. So between the three of us, I think we've, we've seen a little bit under the hood of, yeah, some of the shortcomings of this promise of globalization um, and, and some of the, you know, next steps that we are inspired to and hope everyone listening finds their own inspiration to, to participate, to activate both the prosperity on a financial kind of more American dream level, but also on a, an interconnected level, as well as the, the planetary 
elements to include them into the way we do business because you know sometimes what you shared alpha really inspired me i think sometimes we forget that uh, everything we do in the west comes with a price that's almost invisible to us if you're at a point of purchase you might not be aware of the impact that you're actually generating by buying a 30 dollar item at h&m or a 500 phone that you know has a, a history of how it got into your hands that even though we might kind of understand it we usually just negate at the point of purchase. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So this was like a direct inspiration for you to build uh, Rising Tide Capital, you know, helping and, and, and empowering individuals to start their own businesses. Tell us a little bit more about like the impact you have already made. I think there's like thousands of entrepreneurs that have gone through the, the Rising Tide Capital programs at this point, um, the education pieces of it. Yeah, I, I, I will add, a, a, you know, a couple of quick points in the journey because I actually thought that, um, you know, that the, perhaps the answers could come or need to come from the public sector and government, especially when I was young. So I, I actually majored in government. Um, and I also thought the problem of trying to address uh, everything we were just talking about uh, with regards to economic uh, inequities and, and sustainability felt too difficult in the West, actually. So my uh, gaze was directed towards uh, going back uh, either home or uh, to somewhere else in, in Africa or Asia to do this kind of work. Um, but um, at, at time that I spent in Rwanda, uh, which was part of my kind of looking at uh, state failure and um, times when we've really screwed it up as a species and we've managed to, you know, massacre um, hundreds of thousands or millions of our fellow, uh, you know, um, humans. Uh, so I wanted to look at like, what were the conditions then and how, how have we come back from those types of um, failures? So, Rwanda was actually a, a much more powerful in my studies of the Holocaust and, and uh, other genocides um, played a role in reinforcing my perspective around um, needing to apply more creativity and ingenuity uh, to what the on-the-ground dynamics of uh, economics and how we think about resources, both you know, our perception of what we need to survive uh, what we would need to do to get those resources uh, and how we account for the value of uh, things that are really sacred, like human life and labor and, and so on. So uh, in, in some uh, insane way that life works out where you're like, no, I'm going to go in this direction. And then, you know, you still end up uh, coming back around. And so the time that I spent in Rwanda, which was at that point attempting to recover from genocide, um, really gave me a perspective into the role of local entrepreneurs and markets as not just places of exchange of products and services, but really exchange of new norms and the opportunity to create new culture uh, from people who are coming together aligned uh, and wanting to align or wanting to learn with curiosity. Um, and so there's this whole kind of, that really gave me in many ways, I think, the marriage of that passion and and uh, and then lived experience and seeing oh this thing that I'm passionate about which is that hopefully we don't keep making the same mistakes over and over again um, that it it could actually be addressed by going to the heart of the matter around how people uh, make the necessary uh, resources they need for their daily lives. Um, you know, how they, they go about realizing them and how do we then learn from that to meet them halfway on that journey, if not full, fully in that journey and sit in their shoes and learn and, and begin to uh, navigate what needs to shift. Um, and that experience is directly responsible for me saying, okay, well, uh, there are tons of people like my mom in places like Rwanda and places like the U.S., uh, they're concentrated in urban centers where there's tremendous poverty, as well as in rural areas and small towns, and really uh, feeling into their, um, their creative ambition uh, for, for themselves and what it is that they're 
hoping to express and, and really getting, you know, right down to like, what is their sense of purpose and how do we enable or create conditions that enables their, uh, their capacity for creativity to, to fully emerge. And, um, and we created something, you know, so initially you would think, well, uh, money and financial capital <laughs> would be the easiest answer. <laughs> Can we get them more money and, and deploy that in ways that um, would take care of things? But we learned very quickly um, because we approach this uh, work very relationally. My co-founder, Alex Forrester, is from New Jersey where we started this initiative. Um, and we were challenged uh, by Alex's parents who said, hey, I know you, you young people are really excited about you know, solving global poverty, uh, but how do we deal with what's going on in our own backyard where you can you know, be three minutes away from the depth of distress, economic despair, uh, and uh, be in a fancy golf course or in a materially different situation, just a stone's throw away. And that is replicated in so many places. And they're like, what, what could we do? And that was the, the gap that we're standing in the middle of saying, okay, money, sure. Uh, but as soon as we started, we realized this is so much more than just access to capital. It is around the cultural piece, the social norms that welcome the other, uh, that make people who have systematically and multi-generationally felt like they, their purpose, their ambition, anything that is coming from these beings is not valuable. And that, um, and so creating the conditions to affirm their value, to invite their voices, and to be to take that long-term view and that patient view uh, to walk along on the journey uh, of entrepreneurship with them uh, has been a phenomenal um, opportunity. And now, 16 years later, we're still working with over a thousand entrepreneurs a year uh, in six cities in New Jersey in two languages. And uh, we've been documenting everything since we started. And so we've been able to track our data longitudinally to see uh, the impact on the households directly, uh, but also it's enabled us to share our model with other social entrepreneurs and community groups who want to do this, uh, which started about uh, five years ago in pilot and now we're uh, deploying it, um, you know. <laughs> saying, hey, the timelines are getting shortened for everybody. So, um, but it's, uh, it's been phenomenal. So there are other communities in three other states uh, that have been supporting uh, entrepreneurs in their local communities uh, in ways that I think are really honoring of uh, the values of centering relationship and um, supporting these entrepreneurs on their journey both from a know-how perspective, social capital, and access to the right kinds of financial capital when they're ready. That's beautiful, Alpha. And I was just wondering, what would be like one or two highlights that uh, you can understand from what has changed in those entrepreneurs' lives in their communities or um, families well, with the work that we do? What is the impact? Yeah, I think, you know, uh, the impact has been beyond just uh, their own uh, household and or even uh, business success from a uh, revenue perspective. And certainly many of them right now are in deep hurt as uh, they're navigating, you know, the unprecedented uh, mandates that have come as a result of the public health emergency. But the thing that I can say safely is uh, the broadening of perspective um, that I've seen in our entrepreneurs who are local actors but have a global perspective. And that has been, yeah, that has been my joy because as you can imagine, as somebody who's born internationally or, you know, there is a sense of, oh my goodness, I've been focused on a very, like in a very specific way in one community for 16 years. And the, the calendar just keeps flying. And I'm like, oh, when am I going to get to the global part of the agenda? <laughs> it's like, so it's been really exciting to see our entrepreneurs uh, take on, um, you know, uh, their, their dreams in, in small ways and in big ways. And I will share a couple of stories 
Uh, there is, you know, a phenomenal entrepreneur who came to us because she was caring for her aging grandmother. And she had learned that a lot of her grandmother's friends in the same building uh, needed a, the same kinds of administrative support uh, that her grandmother needed. So she wanted to figure out what she should charge them, how should she structure this. There seems to be a lot of seniors who need these kinds of services, and not to mention that a lot of them are really lonely. There is a loneliness epidemic in the U.S., you know, for those in Brazil or otherwise who, who don't necessarily know, especially in the West for elders, it's terrible. And so she was seeing that and she, she came through our community business academy, graduated from that, and then ended up um, realizing that she can solve some of the loneliness epidemic by forming a nonprofit where she started connecting high school seniors and seniors in these housing projects and uh, by throwing a senior prom, which is a thing that happens culturally here uh, awesome. in, the, in the US, right? And so you have you know, these, these teenagers who are very cool and hip and they're ready to go to college and they're having their senior prom, but they're doing it with seniors um, in a really beautiful way. So creating connectivity. But more than that, she then, as she realized the scope and scale of the problems that she was hoping to address, she uh, ended up uh, running for office, uh, in addition to running the nonprofit and the small business, and got elected. And so she's a sitting legislator at the state um, uh, in New Jersey at the assembly and uh, has introduces more bills than any other sitting legislator that I know of. Um, she's extraordinarily popular. Uh, she is amazing. I mean, she's a machine. So we, we are um, so grateful to see the translation of this, what started as a very private sector engagement lead to public uh, sector leadership. And she's able to bridge the divide between understanding how a local economy works, how a small business works, um, you know, what the constraints of populations uh, that are, you know, growing in size, like the elder population. So that kind of fully conscious, you know, multidimensional humans that are showing up to lead in these times, uh, who have that entrepreneurial spirit of let's innovate, let's be creative, let's look at whatever resources we have and we, we, let's bring them together, let's reconnect the plumbing like that. And imagine that, you know, times a thousand and imagine that times a thousand in every community. That mm -hmm. is the dream that we can activate people's sense of potential and that they can participate in the world and, and shift it and change it. I'm having like full body shivers here because it, it feels, I can feel it. Like it's in my mind too. It's like, where's the global part about any of the work I do or I was involved in in the past. But really when we empower and encourage the local groups to actually step into a lived experience rather than just, you know, a construct of the mind. That's when the change happens and it starts to become possible in all the local activities around the planet. And it's, it's so beautiful how you, how you guided us there, in, you know, through your journey, Alpha. And I wanted to come back to two things you said that are so, um, I think actually very usual for people to come to in their minds. So number one was when you said, well, you looked at governments and the public sector to like um, help with these things, you know, and like maybe even shouldn't governments and cities and, you know, communities solve all the social inequalities. And this is, you know, still the kind of us and them mentality that a lot of people go through is like, well, they should solve it for us and they should see that there's homelessness and they should see that there's social inequality. And while this is maybe, um, uh, a legitimate way to think. I, I too had to learn that that's not entirely how it works. This is not how we set up systems to work. This is not how systems are currently kind of uh, having traction into reality. So we need the pioneers of the regenerative way of thinking and doing to embody this in their communities. And the second thing you said was very similar is about money and capital. Just throwing more money or capital at something doesn't create social connection, right? And it's, I mean, maybe we, we, we could, detour this conversation to what kind of currency we could build that empowers uh, social connection within the currency. But the way fiat currency is set up and money is set up, it just doesn't, it, it's just a mechanism. And so it's very curious to me that, that, that this showed up very strongly for you in your journey. And, and that's what led you to uh, you know, build rising tight capital the way you have. 
Absolutely. And, um, you know, and I, I think the the point about money is a really critical one. And um, my co-founder and my team and I spent a fair bit of uh, time talking about fiat currency and what are the, the, the forms of alternative currency or even, you know, leveraging some of uh, the, the new and disruptive technologies that are available uh, to try and think through what would it look like for people to participate in imbuing uh, money as a way of expressing, um, you know, their, their deepest values and, uh, and not really looking at its value uh, from a perspective of accumulation. Um, so it's, um, it's something that is very much live and active. And I will also say that I think, you know, there is this bifurcation of it's government's problem or it's, you know, the, and the private sector is here. And it's like, no, if we actually believe in interdependence, it's like, the, the, where does the government get its money? Like its revenue source is entirely tied to what, whatever is going on in your paycheck you know, so and where does that paycheck come from? And, you know, so you, you kind of looking at the interdependence here and uh, and then being able to, you know, highlight and say, what are the kinds of businesses that will serve us in this new future, uh, recognizing many, you know, billions of people feel unable to participate and unable to be uh, recognized or seen or celebrated or safe in any way. Uh, in the economies uh, and the economic systems we presently have. And so being able to, uh, to kind of learn from our evolutionary journey to date, to look at the structures we've built, and then to say, here is what the new versions would need to look like in order to serve us 10, 20, 30 years from now, uh, where mm-hmm. we do have a lot more insight than any other generation before us. Um, we are able to experience something like this global pandemic on a level of intimacy as a global human family uh, because Mm -hmm. of the infrastructure that is available to us. I don't think during the Spanish flu, people in Brazil were having empathetic feelings with people in New York, Uh, you know, but we're living through an entirely different um, infrastructure that we've built for interconnectivity and and a level of awareness. And so mm-hmm. we can't just ignore that as a, some kind of side note that is impacting then our value systems, our culture. And, and I think there is still a lot of fear, unfortunately, a lot of fear and a lot of scarcity thinking uh, that has suffused deep into the soils of our, our planet and our consciousness and our bodies and all of that lived trauma. Um, and I think now we have more modalities that are uh, available to us that we're learning about. I heard you, Julian, mention breathwork. And I've been for the past uh, two years an avid (laughs) practitioner um, because I see it as a modality that can so deeply help us accelerate the healing required um, for us to not um, be be fenced in by the really deep, fearsome, um, shadows that, that haunt us from, from our past. And I think there is uh, deep work and the use of these kinds of modalities uh, that are available to us to be able to arrive in an embodied way uh, to a new vision of what our economies could look like, what our planet could look like, what our children's flourishing could look like, and just get real about our constraints. Um, in, in doing so, because our, our planet has finite resources and is sending us very helpful, you know, signals about uh, what it is that we need to be doing. Nice. Beautiful. Alpha. And I, I would love to ask you something because I see your work that you have something in the background, which is reuniting people. And, and th- that comes from your story, from your mother carrying that small picture in your wallet, in, in her wallet, you know, until the day she could finally meet you again and have you both together, your sister as well. So I would love to have you say some words about the beloved economy, because I think it's it kind of, you know, uh, 
tightens up the, these ideas that you were bringing forward in order for us to uh, reunite as a big family. And I know your work uh, is doing that. You have been doing that for quite a while and you have a name for that. So would you please share with our listeners and people that are watching this because I think everyone needs to know about us. Uh, thank you, Rodrigo. You're very kind. And I think the reunification comment will stay with me. I haven't thought of it in that way, but I have noted that uh, I, I do tend towards this kind of return, return to our true selves, return to each other, uh, return to what makes us uh, well. And uh, you know, I, I do think that if we could reunify <laughs> even within ourselves and integrating our own kind of uh, awareness about who we truly are um, and what kind of potential really lies within us for connectivity and, and uh, creativity, uh, that I think uh, we would we would be doing some amazing things. Uh, I think we're on our way. I'm I'm still an optimist. I think uh, we have to just land on uh, a truth that love defeats fear. Ultimately, love defeats fear. Even the most fearsome events in our history, the most terrifying uh, events, uh, I think, have been shown. Um, to be uh, redeemable and uh, to to contribute to our continuing evolution and learning. And just wanted to share that because I know there are a lot of people who are afraid and suffering from a variety of different um, reasons. And it's important for people to remember that there is hope and uh, we have our history uh, to, to prove that hope for us as well, including the, the disasters. So on that note, um, I think you're asking me about this framework that I've been um, building with a team uh, in an initiative we call Future Tide Partners. We're calling it the greatest migration. And uh, it's essentially, you know, given uh, the analysis of so many of the different timelines we're, we're facing and the pressures from different crises, it, it feels like it, this is our grand big opportunity to make the greatest migration uh, to what we hope is the beloved economy. Uh, we're calling it the greatest migration to the, the land of flourishing. And so we have, um, you know, I'm sharing a screen uh, here, but uh, for those of you who are listening on audio, uh, we kind of look at two axes of, um, you know, major, uh, of major concern, you know, the dominant axis around economic security is huge. It's everybody in a world that we have financialized where people's ability to eat is tied to their ability to generate some economic uh, value. It has, uh, it, it is a dominant feature of our, um, you know, really the, the consciousness of so many uh, right now. And then on the other side, uh, the other axis is that of uh, purpose, it is, you know, dignity, freedom, all of these um, desires for actualization uh, that are uh, also very much present right now. And in any conversation when we're talking about economic security and how do we achieve that, there is uh, this kind of commensurate concern around people's ability to connect to their sense of purpose. And, and this is kind of where true security and actualization have to kind of meet one another. And when that happens, um, we think that is what flourishing looks like. Uh, so the question is, how can we get there collectively? Because right now we seem to be stranded in, in different uh, islands. So there is the land of disconnection where there may be really high economic security, but very low sense of self-actualization and, and connection to purpose. And, uh, you know, any number of my friends who, are, uh, who feel like they, they have achieved economic security in corporate roles or in other places, but feel deeply disconnected. Um, and so then there is also the land of abandonment, which is where a lot of people feel abandoned by big corporations, by government. There is a sense that no one is coming and they have very low economic security and don't have a sense of uh, you know, actualization. 
Um, this is, you know, the place where if this land and its population continues to grow at the rate that it's growing, especially given our pandemic, we, we will face uh, those issues of social collapse, economic collapse, which ultimately also makes it very difficult for us to solve for our biggest challenge, which is our climate, you know, and our, the home that we live on, and we need to unify and, and uh, accelerate our solutioning there. So that is the land of abandonment. And then you have the land of purpose where tons of social entrepreneurs and, and people who are, have decided, even though they don't have economic security, they're still going for purpose. And they may not be uh, aware of where the money will come from, but they're activating their ideas, they're starting things, they're, you know, we, we think of often, I think, starving artists, you know, that, that saying, um, where people will pursue their, their heart, um, even if uh, they're uh, economically insecure. And so we've mapped out these lands, and then what we at Rising Tide have been doing is, have, we've been meeting people in the land of abandonment, on that border of the land of abandonment, the land of purpose, and through participation and our um, efforts and programming and support, we're enabling people to create their, um, their boats on rivers of resilience. And it's long-term, but the direction is towards that of the beloved economy. Uh, and then we have, at the same time, people in the land of disconnection who are wanting to migrate. And we recognize that that migration is not just about individuals, it can't happen without individuals, but it's also about institutions, it's about investments that also need to migrate. And so we've been calling those the rivers, uh, rivers of innovation, because at the very least, many of our institutions, including corporations, recognize the saying that innovate or die. And so even though those that have um, uh, are very adept at continuing to you know, gain efficiency through maximizing things they know. Uh, but you know, we're in the unknown unknowns now and we need the little boats and we need uh, you know, the, those who are migrating from the land of purpose and building the enterprises of the future to be where the connection and the flow of capital and the, um, the flow of uh, support needs to go towards. And then for those who are stranded in the land of abandonment, I think our greatest responsibility is to make sure that there is hope, that there are rivers of hope, that those who are um, you know, building their boats in the rivers of resilience are making sure to do so in ways that invite the participation and seats at the table for those who are uh, trying to migrate out of the land of abandonment. And that uh, the land, those who are migrating out of the land of disconnection who have an overabundance of resources that may have accumulated sometimes even throughout, uh, without their agency and participation, that there is ways for the deployment of those resources in ways that create more uh, hope for participation for the billions that are in the land of abandonment. And that when we're, you know, the, the goal is that we can effectively and we need to uh, arrive at a level of consciousness. You know, this requires a level of awareness um, that, you know, this migration is not even really spatial necessarily. You don't have to literally get a new boat and ride up a river to some other land, but it's an inward journey as well of arriving at, at that space where you do feel a sense of true security that is grounded in hope and resilience and, uh, and in innovation. And so that is the greatest migration and we're calling this land of flourishing to be the beloved economy. And we uh, feel that, um, you know, when Dr. King and others who have advocated for the beloved community talk about this, their aspirations and their hopes for the beloved community uh, necessarily have to be undergirded by a beloved economy that could support it. So this isn't to connote a love of economy or economic uh, systems per se or methods, but rather to say economy is how we take care of our household. That is where the word comes from. And us getting really clear about what a relational economy that is grounded in love looks like, we can have much greater chances of success to avert the, the kinds of uh, deep violence and, and uh, social collapse we've experienced in the past 
because of resource scarcity and because we think of the others at the table, they will literally eat your lunch or you know, there won't be any left. And so all the fear-based uh, mechanisms that drive uh, our current uh, economy um, need to be undone and reimagined uh, and evolved into uh, something that could support flourishing. Thank you so much for sharing this with us, Alpha. It's a very powerful matrix and illustration. I'm gonna make sure to share this uh, somewhere on the website as well for everyone who just listened to it on audio, uh, which is just as powerful to have like, you know, followed your train of thought here. It's almost like the matrix in these four quadrants, they're the economy as we know it as a bubble. And so even if you reach, you know, a certain level of security, as you, you know, you call it the land of disconnection, you're still gonna be part of the same circle. And in that circle, the abandonment is felt. It's felt, as we said in the beginning of this episode, in our communities, in our social structures. And so really this moving into, if you call it a new earth or a new paradigm or, or just a beloved economy, uh, I've, I've rarely ever seen it mapped out this eloquently and, and beautifully. So thank you so much for sharing this today. I have one last question for today's episode and and you know we could we could keep talking about this for for so much longer but I have one last question for you today and that is you know deep within you taking this beloved economy as the the jumping off place um, for this question what's the dream for this planet for our species for the society that you have when when we're able to zoom out into a seven generational context here so looking forward seven generations into the future, what's your dream for this earth, Alva? Oh, uh, well, that is a, a big, big question. Um, and in many ways, also the genesis for uh, the visioning around the greatest migration and the beloved economy. Uh, you know, I am at heart uh, a peace builder. Uh, you know, I'm a wage peace type of gal, you know? <laughs> and uh, And so, you know, my my dream is that we would awaken uh, to the the external challenges we face um, that are extinction level challenges, uh, and recognize that we do have the capacity within us uh, to uh, actually uh, make most of us, if not all of us, and those future generations, seven generations to come, well. I think we have enough know-how and wisdom from generations. Uh, there is a practice that we need, uh, new culture, new sense of rhythm, uh, new rituals that we need. All of those are stories yet to be created. Uh, th those are, you know, it's a wide open field. Mm -hmm. So my dream is that uh, first in the midst of this pandemic that we get this moment right. There are a lot of really vulnerable, particularly children, uh, who are in that land of abandonment and newly abandoned as well, uh, for whom that multi-generational trauma uh, could either continue or could stop. Mm -hmm. And that's a choice that we're faced with now as, uh, as adults, as uh, whether we're caretakers of our own children or uh, in a neighborhood or in a community that has, uh, you know, young, young consciousnesses, you know, being formed. And so uh, the choices we make are really, I think, have to be, um, you know, reimagined in a new paradigm around where do we want the children to be? What, what do we want them to be talking about 10 years from now? Uh, and obviously we have heroes like uh, Greta who are uh, showing us a little bit of the picture of the kinds of conversations we might be having. Um, but I think uh, there is, um, a real uh, leveling of not only the, the problems and us seeing them clearly and demonstrating to the younger generation that we're, we're problem solving and collaborating effectively, but it's also that we're changing our consciousness, our awareness out of which we solve, um, you know, because there's a lot of ego involved and we tend to perpetuate a lot of the problems that got us here uh, when we're in fix it mode. So our entire consciousness needs to be, um, um, you know, awakened in a way that I think would allow us to get to a lot of the places we want to get to much faster than the path that we're on right now. 
And so my dream would be that there would be that this kind of um, perhaps the experience of the pandemic would bring us towards greater proximity uh, to both uh, like our greatest vulnerabilities and our greatest strengths uh, for an opportunity to build a new world. I think we have a lot of the ingredients of that. I hope when we get out of this through the other way, <laughs> through the other door, depending on which doors we choose to walk down, uh, that there will be uh, a flourishing planet that is inclusive and we're not blindsided by uh, our historical traumas from being able to, to build a new and beautiful and sustainable world. Maybe so. Maybe so. Maybe thank so. You, thank you so much, Alpha. Thank you so much, Rodrigo. I had a, I had a good time with, with both of you. This was a great episode. Thank you, Julian. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Rodrigo. Thank you so much, Alpha. Your work is amazing. Thanks for listening. And here we are again. This is your host, Julian. I hope you truly enjoyed this episode of Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast and received some insights and knowledge for your life, relationships and business. If you love Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast, make sure to subscribe, leave a review that really allows this podcast to reach a broader audience and share it with a friend. Let me also remind you that this podcast is currently entirely self-funded. I'm a transformational coach and mentor, a breathwork guide and want to offer all my listeners a full 10% off my private coaching work. That is as much as $500 for a three months program. And this discount applies for all one-on-one -on -one coaching offers, as well as some select coaching groups that I host in person. If you're curious and interested, make sure to visit the website greenplanet-blueplanet.com and click work with Julian. Let me tell you a little bit more about my planetary purpose and leadership programs. I am committed to accelerating our human tribe going deep into unconditioning the blocking beliefs and blind spots, enabling your gifts and clarity to amplify for aligned business, healthy relationships and overall presence with life. I have worked with hundreds of people across the world, either one-on-one -on -one in small coaching groups on, online or in person at events. It is my gift to boost authentic confidence and guide you while asking the deepest questions that get you to address your dormant potential. I am an activator and catalyst for those who are ready to step into the highest version of themselves. We live in unique times and let me tell you from experience, having a coach makes a massive difference. I specialize on supporting successful entrepreneurs in unpacking their purpose and joy of life. I do work with startup entrepreneurs and artists as well. And on request, I host individual breathwork mentorships. If you want to learn more, how to support the show or suggest a guest, you can also simply send me an email. If you want to take advantage of the offer I just mentioned and claim the 10% discount, simply book a free consultation with me through my website that is greenplanet-blueplanet.com mentorships and mention the end of episode discount and I'll give the discount code to you right here, right now. It's 808. That's right. That's your code right here, right now, 808. Mention it to me in our free consultation that you can book by the website and 10% are yours. That being said, thank you so much for listening today. Have yourself an amazing day. Don't forget to hit subscribe, review the show, and share it with a friend. Yeah.